0: This podcast contains explicit language, really explicit language.
1: Listeners of this show should be advised that we will deal with a cult that has certain ideas that are, um...
0: They're fucked, Paulina.
1: Yeah, they're really fucked.
0: We'll be dealing with all the ist, ots, and ites.
1: Racists, bigots, anti-semites, misogyny, certainly. And ooh, eugenics. Kicking it old school with eugenics.
0: Certainly a very old way to be racist. But you've got to remember, MGTOW and everything we're talking about is a cult. Uh, No matter what they say, nothing they say is real. And we love you.
1: We absolutely love you. Thank you for coming along on the ride. And we're sorry already.
0: What you are about to hear is the Hashtag Cult Podcast. What is a Hashtag Cult? Hashtag cults are groups that signal membership by using a hashtag or keyword. This allows the group to operate on many different sites and makes them difficult to pinpoint. They use the hashtag model to spread propaganda on a variety of social media platforms without having a central account. This is usually because their ideas are offensive or their methods of communicating are abusive and border on website policy violations. In this show, we will show you the coercive groups and cults hiding in plain sight on the internet. Hi, I'm Mike Falick. Welcome to Hashtag Cult Podcast. Every once in a while on this show... Well, you know, just for a second here. Uh, who are you that I'm talking to?
1: Paulina Pinsky.
0: That's interesting. That's interesting. That's interesting. Uh, and who am I?
1: Mike Fallick.
0: That's true as well. So I guess this is all very interesting. We're making a documentary about uh, MGTOW specifically, but Hashtag cults, which you've just heard an explanation of, and hopefully you're, you're watching, listening to this series... In its order, um, Paulina Pinsky is a writer, and famously the daughter of Dr. Drew Pinsky. Uh,
1: Lol.
0: Lol. That's the letters he has at the end of it. People don't know that. Thank you for illuminating that. You know, I have MD. My
1: degrees are in law. My
0: yes, Dr. Dr. Drew Pinsky. Lol. Uh, but <laughs> uh, noted for being on. TV and radio for many, many years now, including the, I believe, entirety of your life? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. Uh, radio, yeah.
1: definitely. TV came in a little later.
0: One of the tenets that really interested all of us in this, and it's very basic form in terms of the problem of hashtag cults, is people not realizing the difference between published and public. If you go and our, our theory was this before I asked Paulina how she wants to define it, because that's interesting. I'm just laying down for hashtag cult. As it relates to hashtag cults, our main theory was this. You think you're commenting and saying how you feel when you tweet something, or when you comment on a video, or post in a forum. You think you're in the public space, but in reality. You're in the published space, you're publishing a comment, you're under the same legal laws as liable, not on freedom of speech. And you can be subject to any of those things at any time and that that was an implication that this was a permanent idea that we believe a lot of people in hashtag cults don't realize or rather the internet isn't reacting to properly. So. That being said, it's been a relevant part of this investigation. What does publish versus public mean? And so, Paulina, daughter of somebody hmm. who's been on TV for a while, um, what does the phrase published I mean to you?
1: So I think that there's a distinction. Uh, whoa. Distinct- there is a
0: distinction. And if you don't know what it is, she didn't mess up. Go look it up. <laughs>
1: A Schwinn bicycle uh, There's two Schwinn's. There's a distinction between the published I and the published I Now this one of those is spelled pun. E-Y-E The other one is simply the letter I I think in my own life I've kind of been catapulted into the published I In a way that is non-normative
0: I'm um, gonna make a producer note Let's use published I and published me
1: Okay There's a distinction between (laughs) the published I and the published me. The published I is about being on a platform and projected into the stratosphere, uh, into people's homes. Uh, The published... Me or the first time I was published was very different and happened later in life. And and, and by saying published me, I'm thinking the ways in which my writing was published mm-hmm. rather than the ways in which my body showed up on a screen to you or a picture.
0: To you, you want to make a distinction to everyone before we get started. The difference between by volition, by choice, being publishing something, content, whatever it is, being a part of a published piece And the idea that you are simply being published in something, remarked about something in something published, right?
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Let's get into the first time without your own knowledge that you were published. Um, Let's talk about the poop media you've done. Uh, Yes.
1: So here's the thing about multiples. Uh, In Hollywood, when it comes to babies, they want twins or triplets That has to do with child labor laws. Infants are only able to work for so long. Now, if you have multiple babies that look the exact same, you can get multiple shots in the same amount of time that you would uh, Mm -hmm. a a grown adult. So being a triplet, uh, I found myself uh, in a diaper commercial that I have no memory of. Um, Do you know
0: which shots are you?
1: No idea. I've no never idea. seen it. I've, I I only know through rumor <laughs> that the three of us, we, we were almost the babies in the movie Baby Days Out. Mm-hmm. So we would have been, you know, climbing skyscrapers and, and taking over New York City, but I, they went for a set of twins instead of us. Um, <laughs> devastating. Really b- broke us down early. Hollywood was harsh. Uh, we didn't make it in the baby market. Um But that being said, I also was published in a newspaper when my dad was photographed in my parents' first home holding me, and he had a phone against his ear and a beeper on his belt, and it was about essentially his life in in that he was working full-time as a doctor and also doing radio five nights a week. So that takes us to Loveline, which, you know, there is actually a kind of element of Loveline in which I was... La- for lack of a better phrase published in that I was anticipated for on nationally syndicated radio mm. and as a kid there were there would be times that we would go to the loveline studio and there's actually a YouTube video of me when I was five years old <laughs> on loveline really and something that's really kind of eerie uh, that happened in the age of social media around at the time that I was in college people, Fans would find the clips o- in which I was in and tweet them at me,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and it became this sort of weird kind of both. It's nice to to hear myself as a child, just kind of like there's this one segment specifically where uh, I had been in the sound booth and 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 Adam curl is asking me questions and I'm just like I don't know, I don't know, and he's saying like Oh, she's sassy like her mother." Uh, Drew like why are you staring at her like you just got off a cruise ship you know and um, you know it's cute and playful and all these things but it's also kind of disorienting um, mm-hmm. because it's like I didn't I didn't know what it meant I, it meant something to to the people listening mm-hmm. and, and I think that's kind of the place in which it gets a little murky because it's like they have a connection to me that I don't understand
0: Well, to me, as an outsider, if I can just ask, the jarring part of that sentence is the word fans. You don't mean, you know, to me and and Rini, you know, we obviously know who your dad is, but then through him became fans of you. Rini Mm. sort of said, you need to read her stuff. It's good. It's cool. You need to look at her things that she publishes, you know, as much as as much or as little as they may be. She's this cool figure that might be a part of this project. You know, we're fans of you. I want to make that clear. We obviously know your dad's work and and, and things like that. But when you said fans in that story, you meant fans of your dad's that are approaching you. I mean, how does that make you feel?
1: So I have this vivid memory. So K-Rock has three concerts a year. The Inland Invasion. The Acoustic Christmas and the Weenie Roast. And it's, like, you know, these huge multiple-day affairs with all of the best bands and all these things. And so I grew up going to concerts, but, like, it wasn't fun. It was, like, show up on a really hot day with a bunch of drunk people and be polite, you know? And, you know, these rock stars would come up and be like, your dad's a good man, you should listen to what he's saying. And they'd had, like, tongue piercings. And I was like, okay, whatever you say. Um But I have this specific memory of this woman, this drunk woman, coming up to me and being like, you're Paulina. I was like, nine. I'm like, yes. And she was like, oh, your father saved my life. I owe him my life. And I even named my cat after him. My cat's name is Pinsky. And it was a super jarring moment for me because something that was mine was no longer mine. Mm-hmm. Right, The name Pinsky became a whole other identity for a creature. Mm-hmm. It, and, and, it, and it would have been repeated so many times that the origin didn't even matter. And it was kind of the moment in which I would learned, oh, my dad belongs to these people. Or at least these people feel as though they belong to him. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. What do
0: you think of that woman now that you're an adult?
1: Oh, I think it's so creepy. (laughs) I'm like walking up to a child and disclosing that information is so inappropriate. But like, you know, you're backstage at a concert. Weird shit's going to happen.
0: You know, the question I have, and this may be my own opinions and prejudices. So if it's I often as an interviewer, like, you know, because this is usually we co-host this. But I'll let you know, like how I work. I want to make you comfortable to be like, no, it's not that. You know, you don't have to find anything in what I'm saying, but for me, my prejudice is, especially in the juxtaposition of your dad being a doctor, someone coming up to me and saying, your dad saved my life because of his radio show is pretty rich considering your dad actually saves lives outside of the radio show. To me, it's kind of like, I I doubt that it was him.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think it's complicated because so many people feel indebted to him Mm -hmm. and the majority of his career was people coming up thanking him you know saying that he's the smartest person they know you know only praise and honestly I think that I haven't thought about it that way you know it is it is of the volition of the person who received the information to make the work and make the change themselves but people you know I, I think if your perspective has been shifted in such a profound way by a singular person it's hard to see your own volition within that action mm-hmm. does that make sense
0: yeah and i don't mean this to be a thing to like put down obviously inspiring people to many people Mm-mm. has has a no it's a value. Good question.
1: Yeah. It's a good question because it, it, it oversimplifies someone's subjectivity and the, the actions that they took rather than, you know,
0: a radio show, to, a
1: radio show, a right. radio
0: show. <laughs> but you have
1: to remember, Loveline was on the air before the Internet. Mm. So, you know, you couldn't Google like, what are the flaky bumps on my dick? You know, mm-hmm. you had to call in, wait. And then maybe get on and ask doctor. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I I think what's hard to understand about the evolution of my dad's career is that early on he was like the oracle of sex, mm-hmm. and that also created its own weird pressure mm-hmm. um, because then there was anticipation of you know what's the daughter gonna do, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um,
0: Let's let's go back on. That was just a fleeting comment for me. I wanted to yeah. to hear about, especially in the context of hashtag cult. But let's go on to you know for 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 me, for example, if I go to a work function of my parents, um, it's just that. If I tell my friends I went to this work function, they'll go, "Cool, my dad's not in that profession, or my mom's not in that profession." I don't know what that is. Or, yeah, I had to go to some weird party for my family last year. That's weird. For you, some of these things that we're we're listing, you know, I'm going to reveal our notes here to everyone, going to Big Brother tapings, going to American Idol tapings, was that a privilege? Was it a requirement? Was it difficult for you to say to people, that was a privilege, but it felt like a requirement and I didn't like it?
1: Mm, hmm. I think it's the latter. I think at the time, I mean, American Idol was the sickest shit on TV. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like meeting Ruben Stutter, I cried. Uh, b- but at the time. Not it Clay Aiken.
0: Hmm. She also met Clay Aiken. Take it personally, Clay.
1: You absolutely did. Ruben Stutter stole cry. my heart. And people made jokes about him punching his brother over a sandwich, and it really upset me. I was. What's, it, what's his song? Oh, oh, my God. It's like on the tip of my tongue. Wait, is that
0: like a weight joke?
1: It was a weight joke. Okay, because punching your brother over
0: happened. a sandwich as a not weight joke is totally valid.
1: I, I mean, I think it actually happened.
0: Yeah, either way, it's totally valid to punch your brother over food in a situation like that. It's totally I mean,
1: valid. I would have done the same. Exactly. Um, I just want
0: that to be known to people struggling with stuff. Is we support everyone we involved support. in that fight
1: absolutely (laughs) um i i think at the time you know obviously as a third grader you're not being like this is a privilege you know like i am a privileged white uh, upper middle class girl going to american idol wally g like but
0: let's but let's let's remove that element of it
1: but i had a bad if you said you
0: had a bad weekend to, to to me, and I had just said I had to do something for my parents. Like, obviously, the idea of class and things like that, I don't want you to have to apologize for that. But I'm saying, if I said to my friends in third grade, oh, my parents made me do this stupid thing with my family, they'd be like, that sucks. You have to be like, my parents made me do this stupid thing with my family. I went to American Idol. Could you relate to other kids?
1: You know it's interesting because if you ask the kids that i grew up with it was so routine that it didn't feel outlandish it was like because my dad's career and the the scope in which it grew was very incremental and and you know i went to a school where i went to the same i was in the same class with the same kids for like you know k through 12 cool and so it was like more of That's just kind of what happened. You know, it wasn't unusual. Also, I'm from L.A. and people, But could
0: you complain?
1: I don't think I did. I I mean, I wasn't. It's also complicated because around that time is around the time my body started changing and everybody was very focused on my weight. And it was, like, tumultuous. But Mm -hmm. I, I never. Let's just say I enjoyed it. I enjoyed going to American Idol. I enjoyed going to the Big Brother tapings. I enjoyed when Star Magazine came to our house and took pictures of me on the trampoline. It was still fun. At that point, it was still fun. I think the concerts were a little bit scarier because it was crowds of drunken high people, and my dad was the rehab guy, and... To see people loaded reminded me of walking with uh, being in the nurse's station uh, when my dad was doing rounds Mm -hmm. and, you know, seeing drug addicts in recovery, you know, Uh, like I was kind of I was exposed to addicts very young, never in a way that, you know, put me at risk. But I have a very vivid memory of being in the nurse's station with the head nurse and a woman came in and I think she was. A heroin addict and she had a full-blown tantrum in the nurse's station she was holding onto a blanket and it freaked me out i mean rightfully so i was a child seeing an adult act like a child um and i, I very early was like oh drugs are bad <laughs> drugs are bad and we're at a concert okay. where everybody's on drugs so um
0: I guess I'll ask my question again because you've, art, yeah. you've artfully dodged it you know, in, in, <laughs> to give me a great story, but I do think it's a difficult question to confront, and, I, and, and I'm thinking this is part of the theme here, which is I'm just talking about your comfort. I'm not talking about your dad. I'm talking about you because I, I could give a shit about anything to do with anyone else right now. Did you feel comfortable complaining about these things that you would go to, to these concerts? Did you feel your friends would relate? If you had complained about an American Idol thing, a television thing, going to this concert and seeing their favorite musicians and getting to meet their favorite musicians, did you feel as though you had someone to complain to?
1: You know, I I should have complained, like, kind of commiserated with my brothers because they also, too, were dragged to everything. But I don't feel as though... I felt comfortable enough to complain, mostly because it, it at times it felt very cool, you know. And I was exposed to things that you know majority of my classmates were not uh, also going to, um, and and it ended up kind of being a way to help my friends' dreams come true,
0: mm, like.
1: I would get backstage passes for my friends if the con- like the the band that was playing was their favorite and I would make a point of getting them to meet the the artist mm-hmm. because I could, you know, and I think I don't think that I was I think the reason I'm d- dancing around the topic is because the the sort of brand of my dad required that i behaved
0: yeah but not now
1: (laughs) she's doing weird shit now
0: yeah well i'm just saying you know he required well i mean hmm what let's let me not inject my own thing what what why did you what made you think that what made you think that you were required to behave more than more than me or Rini or anyone else.
1: So in the third grade, third grade was a pivotal year for me. Um, my mom was driving me to ice skating practice. And she looked at me in the front seat and said, when you lose your virginity, your father's going to broadcast it on the radio. Mm-hmm. And that's when I learned that America was watching. And if I misbehaved, everyone would find out. And, you know, this is the heyday of Paris Hilton and Lindsay Lohan and Tara Reid, right? The sort of figure of these, like, wild girls partying. And I very much feared becoming anything like them because it felt like the antithesis of what my father had worked for. And so Mm -hmm. I conflated being sexual with being wrong. And that kind of set up the anxiety of performing in a way that would not um damage my father's image mm-hmm. and and the thing is is i don't have that much power like i i don't um but you know when you say something like that to a nine-year-old it sticks mm-hmm. um and i think you know who I am today is still a reaction to that comment and and I think we'll get into that when we get into the publishing aspect yeah. of what I write um I, I, but have
0: you ever seen the film oh sorry I want you to finish go ahead no go ahead did you ever sometimes sometimes people, Well, well, because I leave those moments in They think I'm like interrupting you And I'm like, no, we have a rhythm, guys So uh, (laughs) so, uh, People are like, don't interrupt I'm like, I'm not, she's done (laughs) She's being a good radio person (laughs) So did you ever see the film Mr. Saturday Night? No I believe it's the right one There's two comedy movies that come out at the same time And if it's the Billy Crystal one Then I'm right I'll be in post like coming in being like It's the other one Um But I believe it's Mr. Saturday Night with Billy Crystal. And there's a plot line in it about him maturing as a person. You know, he starts as a young 20-something comic and we follow his whole life until his old age. And as he has a kid, he starts to make jokes about the kid. And as the kid starts to go through more stuff, it inspires him to write more. And it's a side plot and you don't think much of it. You think, oh, this guy's growing and he's still making people laugh. And unfortunately, the character in Mr. Saturday Night is a lot more distant than probably the relationship with your dad is and his family life falls apart in a lot of ways not and you're sort of left to question what, what chicken or the egg and there's this very powerful scene where he's been making fun of his daughter doing stupid stuff when he what he's talking about is the nature of of growing up and how you don't mm. understand things and the daughter grows up to be It's implied she's maybe a drug addict or maybe has been through hard times and you're left to question whether or not Billy Crystal's character causes
1: Mm. this,
0: this girl to be this way or whether or not it's simply an unfortunate turn of cruel events that he made these jokes and now there's this tenseness between them. Do you feel... As though, and I'm not comparing your dad and your relationship to this, but do you feel as though that line between what caused it and what is coincidental is clear in the relationship you have with publishing?
1: I think that I am a very, and always have been a very neurotic, anxious person. And I think the only way in which my father contributed to that is that he is also a neurotic very anxious person and i and it was never anything that he said it was never you know, words that came out of his mouth that made me feel pressure, except for when he said on national television that if I got busted and was thrown into jail, he wouldn't bail me out. <laughs> so in high school, I was like, I can't fuck up. Dad won't bail me out. Um, well, I guess. Yeah. Sorry, yeah I, I, so I think more than anything, it's more about the implicit rather than the explicit. I yeah. think it was the way in which, you know, I popped up on Loveline, the ways in which I was discussed. Mm-hmm. I think the way in which my mom understood she's she's never been good on delivery you know she's <laughs> <laughs> like for reference like her mother was like smoking pack a day and telling her that whores wear red nail polish and dance you mm-hmm. know what i mean so she is a product of that and i though her intentions are right in that she understood that if i messed up it would it would catapult to a national level potentially Mm -hmm. like she it's sort of prophetic in that what she said in that moment ended up being sort of true later down the line. Um, I guess, which I think, yeah, yeah. I, I, I I don't feel as though he explicitly put pressure on me or Uh said anything. I think, His absence in the home shaped a lot of things. I think because he was working so much, he became more of a ethereal, infallible... Because, you know, the parent who's there is the bad guy and the parent who's not there is the good guy, right? Mm -hmm. The one who gets to come in and play is more fun than the one that's taking you to ice skating practice and making you get out of the car for ballet when you don't want to and you're crying, you Mm -hmm. know? Like, that sets up a real dichotomy. Um, And so... Again, well, I think it's more about the implicit. Yeah,
0: let me, let me, I mean, I thank you for opening up about it. It certainly paints a picture as to you being able to separate them from what you may have thought of them. And that's incredibly mature, what you said. And it's also i had a uh,
1: lot of therapy. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but my question is, and thank you for sharing that. I think that's amazing stuff to know. I think it shapes this. It's a it's as valid as valid as any. But I'm saying, how does it shape your relationship to the fact that how does it shape your thinking of your dad's body of work? How does it shape Mm. your thinking of radio at large? How does it shape your thinking of TV at large? Mm -hmm. I'm less interested. It's great to hear the things between you and your family. And it's nice to hear that it's everyone is reconciled in that department, but I'm more interested in how do you now view talking about, personal things, uh, you know, in the published sphere. How do you view Mm -hmm. TV through this experience of, oh, my virginity is being my virginity was never talked about on TV, I don't think, to my knowledge. You know, how does it make you view not your dad and your dad's actions, which sounds like everything's great with you guys. How does it make you view
1: TV. That's that's a overstatement. I I wouldn't say it's all great, but no, it's all bad. No relationship. (laughs) Well, I think that that it's multi layered. I think so. I was exposed to radio. Very young I think <laughs> You say radio-
0: <laughs> You say Well you know Everyone's It's just on <laughs> You're saying it like They brought me to a room And expo- <laughs> <laughs> exposed me to yeah, the radio
1: you know, waves I have memories Of being in the sound yeah. Studio And my dad being In the You know It was like a room It was like two rooms And then one of them Was like a glass wall And you could see Into the studio And see that Adam And my dad Were we're talking and then I would be with the producers who would cover my ears during the sex parts. And then every once in a while, they'd let me like be on the show because it was like fun, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, So I think, I mean, radio is a dying industry. Mm -hmm. Um, Welcome
0: to our podcast. Go on.
1: (laughs) Radio is a dying industry and TV slowly became uh you know my dad's primary medium he's you know he's obviously a podcaster and all that but i i kind of saw the ways in which radio slowly died out and tv became the primary medium within my family and the ways in which um we were were you know captured and so after celebrity rehab uh which was around when i was in high school my dad got a gig on hln which is CNN's sister channel Which put him on nightly news. And suddenly there was a camera crew in our house demanding things of us in order to sell a package. Um, And so that's kind of the moment that I understood that everything on TV is fake, Mm. quite literally everything. Yeah. Uh, Reality television is not reality, it is written, it is edited, it is a storyline meant to elicit specific responses and gain views for ratings, which equals money. Um, And this is kind
0: of when I think it's worth pointing out to you, this, this, this package, this incident, you know, I know we're, we're sort of springboarding off of another question. So I want to kind of separate it for everybody to hear this, this, this package, as you said before, you still enjoyed the, the, the American idol concerts. To you, this package represents a, a break in your relationship with, with this being fun, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think once, once I hit high school and my dad was a more recognizable face, it changed how I understood television and it changed the way in which people treated us in public. So let's go through this story
0: properly, you know, start from the beginning about this HLN thing and let's, let's walk through it. Even your attitudes going into it. So before this, all your TV stuff was what hanging out with Adam Carolla and sort of maybe a fun late night thing to do and getting to see dad at work and going Mm -hmm. to weird concerts. And now there's work for you to do.
1: Right. I became part of the product. Uh, Part of selling my dad to America was selling him as a family man so we were in the summer before college it was the first summer i wasn't training in the ice rink every day it was the first summer i wasn't really explicitly going to my new childhood nutritionist which is a whole story Uh, that's another podcast um that's read the memoir for that uh but coming to stores this spring (laughs) Yeah, Uh, that would be nice. Uh, That would be really nice. Um, Coming to
0: stores eventually. Just chill. Why don't you (laughs) fucking chill?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, so I just remember my mom telling us, oh, it'll it'll only be an hour. It'll Mm -hmm. only be an hour. And Douglas Jordan and I were like, okay, it'll only be an hour. And 15 people show up. There's hair and makeup. There's wardrobe. Uh, you know industrial lights are set in the hallways there's people who are like watch the cord." you know it became a film set and specifically one producer thought it would be hilarious to get all of the empty boxes in our house tape them up and then have my brothers and I do a bit where we took turns loading and unloading boxes in the car because my parents were going to be empty nesters and so they had us do this like I loaded the boxes in the car and walked away Jordan unloaded the boxes and then loaded his boxes Jordan I mean Douglas I'm getting my brothers confused Douglas came in and unloaded the boxes and loaded his boxes and so it took like 15 minutes per take to do it they had us do it three times my brothers and I are like rolling our eyes so far back into our heads we're passing out I finally saw the end footage and it was literally like an interlude it was like three seconds in between takes and I was like oh I am part of the production value Um, another scene they had us filming in the kitchen cooking breakfast My family didn't eat breakfast together. Mm -hmm. And so they were like, act normal. Do like what you (laughs) always do. There won't be any sound in this take. And so I just remember my dad cracking an egg and me looking at him being like, this is really weird. And he's like, I know, just it's almost over. What would you normally do?
0: I'd love to give voice to that. What was breakfast like?
1: Breakfast for me, which is... uh, I'm, I'm embarrassed to share this because it exposes a lot. But every morning, my childhood nanny would come up with a bowl of yogurt, berries and six packs of Splenda because that's what I was allowed to eat. And so I would eat that in bed, which makes me feel like a princess, <laughs> which maybe, you know, in some way I was. Um, but quite literally, my my breakfast was delivered to me usually because I was skating in the morning.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but at that point, all of our schedules were so demanding and so different that I could go a few days without seeing anybody. Mm-hmm.
0: And 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 that's that's extending what you mean by fake to you. This is so odd that someone doesn't make a joke at the very least and going like, I've never cooked eggs with my daughter like this
1: yeah yeah it was it it exposed to me how much was going to change um and i i i left i left in a huff i drove off and i stayed at my best friend's house for like three days i like didn't come Uh home and it was the first kind of rupture in my family it was the first time that i kind of was like no fuck you you know but i i didn't say it i just did the passive aggressive waspy thing and i just silently removed myself from the situation um but that was a pivotal moment for me because i just remember feeling used i didn't Mm -hmm. feel like i was valuable i felt that i was only valuable by proxy um
0: if i can if i can talk up you and sort of explain why this story came to mind when i asked the last question if you've ever read paulina's work paulina is very fucking distinctly paulina all the goddamn time and in her work there's no version that's fake if she's confused she'll tell you if she didn't know she'll tell you if she's learning she'll tell you if she does something embarrassing she'll tell you the idea of this shitty uh, okay take it hlm producer this stupid bit about people <laughs> unloading cars like you know we see that stuff and i think producers think that we like that stuff and at a certain point it's like yeah but not really, and it, it's like I'm not making fun of that person comedically, and whatever the sensibilities of their boss no, probably dictate it. Do
1: but please like, do. <laughs> well,
0: I know in the corporate life, you've got to be like, oh, Ted'll love if I go in there and I do a whole bit with the boxes with the kids. You know what I mean? It like I know that corporate filmmaking and studio filmmaking is very different and people have to do what they think they have to do. And yeah. that's why that's Paulina's answer to how do you view publishing is this fakeness and that's our sense together, which is what I think we get. Like, just stop, stop being full of shit all the time, everyone. Like, do you think oh, we yeah. don't smell it? Do you think that you go on TV and you're like, ha ha ha, today? It's like, wow, you sound crazy.
1: But see, that's the thing is a lot of people buy it. Right. And so you know that kind of catapulted me into college into kind of like a whole other headspace that's when i started oh
0: shit like that's like the concept is empty nesters so it's like Mm -hmm. hey kids let's do a really
1: taxing fucking thing and then bye oh yeah i was so angry i was so angry and i moved across the country and i was like i'm gonna put green dye in my hair and drink Shots of peppermint schnapps And use okay, well, Mark like a daisy perfume Just,
0: I, like all, I like all these things But I know that <laughs> yeah. I'm a trashy person Well I so started to
1: rebel really hard And I think part of that was coming to terms With my eating disorder mm. Which then
0: Let's transition to, to the published eye So this is crazy That this is the first thing That you get published uh,
1: Yeah so My friend in college Uh, asked me to write a piece about my eating disorder. And I had blogged for Endangered Bodies, which is a New York uh, City-based body-positive organization. And I had started sort of loosely showing up to their meetings and addressing my own eating disorder. And it was all very premature. But I wrote this piece called Get Your Teeth Checked, uh, in which I to disclose the time I told my mom about my bulimia and she told me to get my teeth checked. <laughs> that being said, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> you know, it, it was a jarring moment, but the whole entire piece is about intergenerational, you know, body image issues and the ways in which my relationship with my mother was evolving and the ways in which we were growing and and healing yeah. and all these things. And within my college community, It was really well-received, and it was the first time I had been praised for something other than, like, ice skating, you know? Mm -hmm. It was like, oh, I might be a writer. Six months later, New York Post picks up my piece, and page six just pulls out the line, get your teeth checked, and within the hour i'm getting phone calls from good morning america today show all they found my personal cell phone number mm. and were asking for interviews mm. and i was i was in a feminist discussion group when i pulled out my phone and saw someone tweet at me like nice new york post article and i was like what new york post article and i googled myself and Thousands of hits for uh, not even Paulina Pinsky, but Dr. Drew's bulimic and anorexic daughter.
0: Wow, what a label!
1: Yeah. So, from that moment, I kind of catapulted back in time to my mom saying, when you lose your virginity, your father's going to broadcast it on the radio. And instead of my virginity being blasted on the radio, my deepest, darkest secret was blasted on the internet Mm -hmm. under my father's name. And so, I ran into a stairwell and had a panic attack, as one would. Um, And I think that's kind of the moment in which... You were asking me before if, if my peers you know, didn't understand or I felt out of sorts or whatever, I think that's the moment when I felt alien. Mm -hmm. Because at least my childhood friends had kind of They saw my dad as my dad, right? They didn't see him as Dr. Drew. They saw him as Dr. Pinsky. Mm -hmm. And when I got to college, you know, it was this delicate dance of how do I describe who I am without disclosing my identity entirely? How do I say I went to American Idol in the third grade without saying my dad is Dr. Drew, right? How do you (sighs) contextualize memories that have you know, no bearing in in lived reality. And so, you know, I tell people I was from L.A., I wouldn't say Pasadena. You know, you kind of, you figure out how to introduce yourself Mm. during an icebreaker session. But that piece going national catapulted me into the television spirit in a way that I had never experienced, except what I had experienced through watching my dad. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I would, like, go to CNN and watch him do segments. I would be in the control room. I would be with him in, you know, makeup or whatever. I, could, I, I would kind of walk with him because it was really fucking cool. <laughs> um, and all of a sudden, my dad's publicist is fielding interviews for me, And, you know, the next day, it was a Sunday that New York Post uh, blew up my spot. Monday morning, I was on CNN. Uh, A limo came to pick me up. They drove me to the CNN building in Columbus Circle. They airbrushed my face, slapped on red lipstick, and I had gotten my hair bleached the night before because uh my roots were really bad and my hair had turned yellow because I got a bad dye job. But I got an emergency bleach job because I understood that if I were if I was gonna be heard, I had to look the part. Interesting. And so I kind of leaned into my etiquette school training and debutante tendencies and, you know, wore an appropriate T-length dress and crossed my ankles and held my my fingers together in a, a light grip as I answered questions. And, you know, I would be interviewed on CNN, Entertainment Tonight, Extra. And then finally, my dad interviewed me on his show.
0: I watched the HLN clip. Um. I have a lot of feelings as someone who's worked with you about them that I'm, you know, we've done this this documentary for a short time now, but I mean, in doing this interview, I have to ask, to me, and you can tell me if I'm off base, the amazingness of getting, of you writing this and getting the word out there on eating disorders cannot be undersold. And your accomplishment is amazing. The interview, however feels like people talking at you at a time where you should be listened to.
1: (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Specifically that interview, one of the women like kind of went off on me. Did you notice that moment? Yeah. Where she was talking about her daughter and how her daughter was bigger and how she had to do portion control. And it was like, listen, lady. You're projecting your shit on me right now. I'm pretty sure I like I remember listening to her and I remember like we had technical difficulties. It was a messy, messy interview but I just remember thinking, oh I'm not even gonna address that question and I think that that is sort of symbolic of that entire week. More than anything, what I learned was how to dodge questions, yeah. which you know I'm very good at. <laughs> <laughs> That's when I learned that skill because basically what would happen is people would interview me and they say oh it seems like you blame your mom for your eating disorder yeah. and you know good morning America Good morning America photoshopped flames behind my mother's picture
0: yeah even now like, I I was you know the attachment to what I'm implying when I ask you something is always interesting with an interviewer you know often that gets cut out but we're on podcasts you know I asked, you know, how do you view their work? And all of a sudden you're apologizing for your mom and all those things. You know, do you think that these past interviews have affected, they sort of want to ask the same question in a different way. Do you do you think that being in the published eye has affected how you now assume people view you? That I don't think I would, I understand that there's many factors and things that people hang on to and have more damage than maybe someone intended. Like I, I, I have an understanding of that, but do you assume that I think that that I'm going to ask you to talk about, like, blaming your parents?
1: No. No, yeah. no, 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 no. I don't think that. I think...
0: Or rather that people view you that way with your relationship with them?
1: At that time, yeah. that was what was getting clicks. And mm-hmm. that was what was getting me interviews, was this idea that Dr. Drew fucked up his kid Mm. and that his wife was an evil witch you know like this perfect so-and-so perfect guy the doc america's doctor in the 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 kind of uh the tagline that kept fucking happening was like even dr drew's daughter can have an eating disorder and it's like And and part of that was of my own making. That's something Some that Some of that's I good, said. right?
0: Some of that's good. Some of that's good I mean, to be, you I, I know, in our project, we go, you're not immune to a cult. That's something we've said all the time.
1: Yeah. And I was not immune to an eating disorder. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it all sort of culminated. I was able to dodge a lot of questions until I was interviewed by Barbara Walters.
0: <laughs> I, I think that that, 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 that interview is interesting, too, because it's at the same time. But you look so much younger is to me in that Barbara Walters one, but uh, before I ask you about that, I still want to focus on this HLM one for a second. Yeah, of course. I have to criticize them. Please. The idea of there being, you know, at the time when this came out, I know now someone might look at it and go, there's some people on camera. The idea of having that many talking heads on screen at the same time would have been jarring visually at the time in terms of, that would have been a more rare idea right? Mm -hmm. That many heads. And on top of that, the idea that this was supposed to be about your personal experience, to me, it screams of two things. One, how you are some sort of meat festival to these people because of the association with your dad. Mm -hmm. Everyone needs to get on camera with him so that you can use this. That's what it screamed to me at, at first. And then as journalistically, ethically, um, I'm not sure that someone revealing that they have a sensitive issue, they're, they're happy to publish again, talking at you instead of listening. That should have been the Barbara Walters interview, you know, is a lot more. And I I guess it maybe does make me see you as how you're feeling. Maybe that's it. The strength of the interview is I Mm. see you feeling alone and isolated. and, And that's how you are. And I do see a confident, cute young Paulina on the other HLN interview being the news lady, putting on that act, but to yeah. me, I'm like, hey, could everyone shut the fuck up and listen to her? It was like everyone yeah. telling you how to feel. Yes.
1: Yes. Thank you for saying that. Because I, I, don't, I don't think I was able to articulate that because I, I'm too close to it.
0: Yeah. But I
1: think that that is very apt and entirely emblematic of that moment. And I think what was... So, Monday after New York Post posted... I did three interviews and mm. then Tuesday night I did HLN a week later. I did the view. Mm-hmm. So it was a week of a lot of dodging until finally I got to an interviewer who has, you know, interviewed sociopaths and dictators, know. you know, like I, I, and I came face to face with a very powerful interviewer and she, fucking went for it because so the basically when you do a talk show um a producer calls you ahead of time you talk for 15 minutes you tell them what you your your angle is and they're like okay great i'm gonna send you a script with all of the questions and they sent me a script and it was like you blame your mother for your eating disorder <laughs> and i was like that's not that's not what you're gonna ask me i was like that's not gonna happen so i knew the questions leading up to that mm. Uh, I show up on the stage at The View and Barbara Walters doesn't look at the teleprompter and is like, what did your mother say to you when you told her you were bulimic? And I was like, my mother and I have a complicated relationship. You know, I'm like, I'm doing that dance that I've been doing all week. And she's like, what did your mother say to you? Mm-hmm. When you, got, you know, and I had to say, get your teeth checked on national television. Yeah. And, and I think that, your observation in that I seem very young in that moment is because I, I was very young. You were young. I was young, 21. Yeah. I was 21. I was a junior in college. I had written my first piece and I had been in recovery for, what, a year? And I was going through a very stressful period of time. Meanwhile, everyone at school is like lauding me to be this like superhuman figure. So I'm put on this pedestal that I don't know if I deserved. I hated it. It made me uncomfortable. People just coming up to me being like, you're so brave. And it's like, because I'm chubby and went on TV. Like, I don't understand. Um, and so it, it, it kind of cracked the facade. I think Barbara, Barbara cracked me. Uh, Barbara <laughs> for sure cracked me. Um, And I think that interview, because of that, is a little bit more in-depth and interesting. Um, I think that I was actually listened to in that interview.
0: I'll say something else as a journalist. You were actually researched is the difference. And that's the thing that I think I'm sensing as a filmmaker is I watched the piece with all these people on HLN. Fuck you, you didn't read it. Fuck you, you didn't read her piece. Someone said we're doing a thing about anorexia and bulimia and... You may have had a personal attachment to it, but this was supposed to be about Paulina and you made it. You didn't put the effort in. You were researched. She knew to ask. She knew to ask, you know, and and you know what? It's not their fault. They all have their own personal experiences and people jump at these TV opportunities. But it really was a segment about you. And the least they could have read what like a like a like what, like what a five hundred word article? How long was it? How long could it be that they couldn't? I mean, do it was it? like
1: a twelve hundred dollar uh, okay. $1, twelve hundred dollar twelve hundred word piece. Yeah,
0: you know what I mean. Like, it, 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 it's about someone's mental health journey. You could have done her the courtesy of reading it, and it, it, it's so obvious to me when someone doesn't read it. You know how I know they didn't read it? Because the first question should be. What did you say? What what should be about the piece? Every question should be. Every question should be. Hey, you wrote this. How do you feel about that? And uh, to the dismay of the producers, nobody said this is about her. Hey, maybe you don't have seven heads on camera. Hey, yeah. like her being, her writing something doesn't make her fair game. You know what I mean? It's, the, and that's the thing I wanted to ask you about in, on top of this is like, I know now I'm on a little bit my own screed because it does make, you know, read it. It doesn't take that much to do like 10 minutes of research. Do you know how smart I end up looking when I didn't do that much? I Google someone's, the, the ability to remember 10 minutes before an interview. Oh crap. I should at least Google what they do on LinkedIn. Like yeah. you look yeah. like a saint and that's the minimal amount of effort. But, and I'm on my own screed right now. But to ask you, essentially, you know, do you (laughs) felt as though you were open season now that you had published one thing and were Doctor Drew's daughter?
1: Absolutely, and it was exceedingly clear who read it and who didn't read it. It was (laughs) it was clear, and you know, it. It really honestly fucked me up for a long time because, you know, I would apply for jobs and people would Google me, and the first thing they would see was that I was bulimic and anorexic. Mm-hmm. And it kind of chased me around. And, and it, it's, it's complicated because I think it catapulted me to a, a sphere in which I was writing.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: ultimately, I think that that's my soul's purpose. And it happened by chance. I did not grow up thinking I was going to be a writer. I didn't have a vision of who I'd become because I don't think there's a there's a James Baldwin quote that's essentially along the lines of, you know, uh, I'm going to butcher it the way James Baldwin said it is much better. But essentially, the idea is that the the person who I'm going to be does not exist because I have not created it. And I think I had never seen nonfiction literary writing. I, you know, didn't understand the ways in which my voice mattered. Mm. I didn't feel smart. That was the first time that I felt smart in my life. Mm. And it was a pivotal moment in that I understood the power of my eye. I understood that whether i liked it or not you know someone at new york post was waiting until eating disorder awareness week Mm. to drop my story you know and it kind of in that moment i was like i'm gonna grow up and be a comedian Mm. (laughs) i was like fuck this shit i'm done being eating disorder girl um so i went to second city and then i was like wait this doesn't fit right and then I ended up getting my MFA in nonfiction creative writing. But I don't think that the MFA would have happened had I not written that piece.
0: So let's, let's transition in the last part here to um, the published eye and, and the published space versus public space and hashtag cults and things like that. How do you feel about the idea that not only does media have the right to comment on other media – But that, and in the lens of all these things, not necessarily, you know, if you want to base it on your experience with hashtag and MGTOW, go ahead. But I think in the lens of all this stuff, how do you feel about the comments section? How do you feel about the accepted culture of if it's online, you get to shit on it, but no one gets to stop you in the comments section?
1: yeah the comment section sh- just should not exist i i fully believe that especially after the investigation of mctow i don't think that i've ever had an enriching experience in the comment section except on medium actually yeah oh i was gonna medium, ask medium yeah medium because people are paying for it they tend to add number one look for the writing itself and number two like recognize they recognize game you know what mm-hmm. i mean and last uh, valentine's day yeah i was in the valentine's newsletter for the publication human parts uh, someone i went to grad school with remembered that my dad was dr drew <laughs> and she was like your, your dad's name came up when we were pitching ideas for our valentine's day special like do you want to write a piece and my memoir and a lot of my unpublished work is like about this topic specifically um and so that's why i'm like excited to talk about it because i think i need to figure out how to articulate my thoughts surrounding this because i'm i'm writing about it and Mm. when i talk about it it helps me figure out what i'm trying to say on the page um so i wrote a piece called i think it's called the sex doctor's daughter and um you know it was really well received i got all positive comments and then my dad got canceled (laughs) And this one dude, like, out of nowhere found my piece. And, like, on Medium, when you comment on a piece, you're, like, essentially commenting on someone's personal profile. So, like, I'm the person receiving the comment. Human Parts is not moderating. I'm the person receiving the comment. Mm -hmm. And someone wrote, Dr. Drew is a snake oil salesman. Mm -hmm. And I was furious. I was like, no, we don't do that shit here. (laughs) absolutely not I was like and I just I like politely went off on him and I was like if you have anything to say about the quality of writing I'd be interested otherwise your comments are unnecessary and this guy would not let up and and, you know first rule is like don't engage with a troll just don't Mm -hmm. and I just like fell into that trap because I was vulnerable and didn't know what to do and I think part of the magic of this project is that it came during that period of time in which you know my dad was being canceled and and that's a whole other thing and i i don't have eloquent things to say about it other than it really fucking sucked and was scary um thank you by the
0: way that shows why i like paulina you don't have to say something if you don't have thoughts you can just
1: say i don't know yet (laughs) uh, yeah i mean that's the thing is like i would love to have a hot take on cancel culture but i don't I don't because ultimately it's a really painful experience. And I don't think unless you're like Harvey Weinstein, you know, I, I think it's 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 gang mentality and and scapegoating
0: you know um yeah i had yeah. i had some questions a, a little bit tangentially to cancel culture and i don't expect you to give good answers so i want to i want to end on those even good though i is, won't well you can say you don't know <laughs> i'm trying to broadcast that after i went on my, my little interruption there but i I, <laughs> I um i had a thing about that, that that comment there for a second you know there is this phenomenon there's been a few books written about it where if you've ever seen it someone writes a tweet and for whatever reason it goes viral, and everyone on the internet tweets this one joke. And usually, the tweet it pins at the top of the timeline is like, "Wow, I didn't think this would happen today." Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of books written about um, instances in which it's it's a negative tweet and it goes and it goes viral. But there's something interesting too about the positive tweet about being thrust into. The, the the grand scale of the internet how how does that story make you feel i saw a joke the other week about star wars and it got out oh, just randomly you know the hashtag got boosted someone at twitter found it they put it on the featured you know section of the search and this person had blown up because of a joke fan theory i mean how do you relate to that i guess that this is the core of this of this whole journey here is you being through what you've been through now everyone knows what may, what are what are the emotions you feel when someone suddenly has a tweet that blows up and they have you know a hundred followers and now hundreds of thousands of people have retweeted their theory about how Ray is actually a fungus or something I don't know.
1: <laughs> I think it depends on what that person is being blown up for. Positivity.
0: Think, Let's say it's positivity. Okay,
1: positivity. I don't know if
0: because that's what you experience. What
1: has yeah? What has become routine in terms of mass approval is an overwhelming experience. I was thinking the other day about how as a singular human, there has never been such a demand in human history to have such a global perspective all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think that the internet kind of demands that you know more than you actually know. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's just a side tangent, but the main tangent I think even if you're being blown up for positivity, it is an overwhelming experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that there isn't enough, I don't know if there should be research on it, but like the psychological impact of having the sort of having a hundred thousand voices say anything to you shouldn't happen. Yeah. Like unless you are a world leader <laughs> and now and
0: then even then the, you wouldn't get a anything random done. citizen yeah right you would need right. A to random be citizen.
1: right and i think psychologically it is overwhelming to have that many eyes on you mm-hmm. yeah and yeah and I, I i you know the degree to which i experienced it um it was so, it was in retrospect, so challenging because if I'm honest with myself, I don't think I was ready in mm-hmm. my recovery to be as open as I was. And I think it kind of forced me to become a paragon of virtue in which I was not one. Mm-hmm. Um, like I still spontaneously vomit when I'm anxious, you know, like that's, that lives in my body. But that's not part of the recovery narrative that's sold to you. Mm-hmm. Um I, I just worry about the psychological impact of having yourself viewed by that many people at once. Even if it's an electronic like or a retweet or whatever. I just, I worry. I worry for people who have a million followers. I worry about what that does on their psyche.
0: Yeah.
1: I, I, I don't think that having a million voices comment on a picture is an appropriate <laughs> is an appropriate interaction. In fact, if someone has close to a million followers, I unfollow them because I know that their content will be less challenging and interesting because they're trying to cater to more people.
0: On the same uh, subject of cancel culture, and maybe these are things that not promoting the the not just I don't think I'm he- somehow helping promote the the memoir, but maybe things that I wonder about is sort of two moments in that 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 interview that's really interesting to me. And I'll, I'll ask you about them separately. And, and if they're too big to answer now or if there's something that in a future project you want to float by your dad or, or maybe you don't have an answer on, you know, we can skip it. We can even skip okay. this part. So I'll just, I'll just ask them of you. To me, the metaphor of your dad is on TV talking to you at the beginning of that segment and he doesn't know that you can't hear him.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: is a fairly... It's a technical issue, everyone. The mic... Paulina's speaker isn't working. Her monitor headphone isn't working. Is a fairly powerful metaphor that someone could draw. Maybe not it's real, but it's a fairly powerful metaphor to see. And I think that the mind jumps to concern when that metaphor hits them of he's talking to his daughter on TV and she... Can't hear him. Does mm-hmm. that strike you as a metaphor that resonates at all?
1: Absolutely. You know, it's it's funny that you mentioned this because I. So I'm writing this memoir. Memoir. And I've been for four years. Memoir. Memoir. Um, and, <laughs> and I opened the book by being interviewed by Barbara Walters. Now, for a while. You know, all this material was a little bit too challenging for me to write about. And I was like, ugh, I don't want to write about that week. I don't want to write about that week. I don't want to write about that week. And I remembered this interview and I watched it and I was like, oh, this is what I need to write about <laughs> because <laughs> it, this is why I love nonfiction. You don't have to make shit up when life is fucking nuts. You know, like God handed us that interaction and and someone sent me that video so that now I can transcribe it and write about it. Like I think it's so symbolic of everything. <laughs> yeah. I think um you know, if you notice at the end of that interview I asked my dad how he felt
0: that and was my next question. Wait, can I yeah. pose a question about it before you talk about it?
1: Of course, of course.
0: RE cancel culture. Years before that word comes up. And in terms of learned behaviors, and you know, there's learned behaviors between entertainers now. You've learned behaviors from your dad about social media. And I'm not ta- I'm not trying to delve into your family life, but I'm just saying as a role model to look up to. His before cancel culture, his reaction on air is you ask him. How did you react to all of this? And his answer was, I wanted to hide. I was scared. I didn't want people to comment on it. Mm -hmm. To me, as an outsider, I see that anxiety as perhaps something, obviously there is cancel culture that goes on. But in terms of your mood and the mood of the Pinsky family, do you see... Some sort of self-fulfilling prophecy in the idea that six years before cancel culture, your dad's instinct about a news piece coming out is that he's not—he doesn't want interaction of it. He wishes it to go away. Mm-hmm. Do you think that line is discernible for for? I can't. I know you can't speak for your dad, but for you, do you yeah. do you feel that maybe that anxiety? cancel culture then happens to you then all yeah. of a sudden society has a term conveniently a few years later that says when something goes bad that you do something bad we want to get rid of you from the internet do you feel mm-hmm. as though that line is being drawn enough to be like some of this may be i hear both of you talk about cancel culture honestly from the outside and it's obviously bad i obviously feel so much for you but I then i hear a quote like that from six years earlier and i'm like is it much? Is it even more empathy I need to give them? Is there an anxiety coming into this that's making this experience even worse than all the empathy I have for them?
1: Hmm. Mm. You know, I think what strikes me as most powerful is that I didn't ask that question on the phone. I asked that question because someone asked me to ask that question. Hmm and i think in that moment i felt responsible for Mm. the like you know it was like i was canceling my dad
0: you had to make it clear hey how are you doing Mm -hmm. and it was less about connection and more about hey everyone else look he might be suffering
1: yeah and uh, you know i uh, to a certain degree i felt a lot of shame because it wasn't my name being thrown out there
0: interesting um and i
1: you know it's interesting because like my dad was one of the first people on twitter and so experiencing the evolution of twitter culture by proxy has made me very afraid Hmm. um and and that's as someone who explicitly sells her secrets on the internet for money you know like I write about my vagina and people who lick it often Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. and
0: before we met I had read about her vagina and the proximity to other people
1: (laughs) and I but I think that that's a reaction I think it's a reaction to my mother's comment in the third grade I think it's a reaction to being an anorexic and bulimic on a national scale what do I have to lose um, and I also think that, you know, in terms of the way that we discuss sex, I don't see sex depicted in writing in a way that is either uh, nuanced or funny or awkward or real. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's interesting. I think your question is interesting and I'm, I'm sort of chewing on it. And Chew. I think, I think for, to a degree... I felt guilty. I felt mm. as though I had pimped my family out by s- saying my truth, and like and my, my brother was furious and not talking to me. You know, like oh, wow. it was not. It was not a good time in my family, and. You know, the same thing as cancel culture. Like, that was not a good time in my family. And it's...
0: I don't think there's any need to be eloquent right now. I think it's... it's, I think, if anything, the, 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 the silence of it speaks to the fact that so many people look at these things and write, you know, how many tabloid things are there about you that never interviewed you how many tabloid things do we read and we accept oh, these things
1: dude dude this girl that i interned with when i interned at mtv because of nepotism
0: mm-hmm.
1: um she <laughs> the,
0: guys everyone it's their nepotism <laughs> program she applied.
1: Yeah. I applied i applied and i got and then
0: it she because, got of the job because of my dad because nepotism um, it's a program yeah,
1: you know it's uh it's great to be here uh yeah she ended up working for yahoo shine and she had my personal cell is that, phone number what is
0: what is, wait i don't mean to make it's fun of everyone just as vague
1: yahoo? as it sounds it's a a, a gossip rag for yahoo <laughs> there's <laughs> a section
0: of yahoo that admits it's gossip more than just everything on yahoo yeah i'm not yeah. being funny that's a that's a real place where they're like there's an even more bullshittiness area of Yahoo that you, that we have to just... <laughs> man, that's a line.
1: Yeah. Well, so she... Also, Yahoo, it's editor. satire.
0: You can't sue me. I think you're dumb. So it's fine for me to say it. It's parody. <laughs> it's fine. It's only liable if I'm actually implying you're bad at your job. I'm not... I don't like you it's a joke
1: i i don't like yahoo shine either yeah, i don't know what yahoo chick, shine is yeah well like- so she had my personal cell phone number and she handed it to her editor she was like i know her here's her number Eesh. and like so many invasive things happened that it was just like in the catalog of it's so hard to elaborate a, a violation that required no touch
0: yeah And I think that it will take a long time... I think, to go back to your answer, I think it takes a long time to process what's going on because you weren't involved. Because it just happened. Because there is no expertise from you involved. The narrative's written by someone else. And speaking of narrative written by someone else, as you know with all my interviews, whether or not it is the last thing in the video or the podcast or whatever, I always ask the guest, symbolically, to have the last word. So...
1: The final word... My final word is all of this all that I'm articulating is my life's work I think that figuring out how it felt and how it impacted me and how it impacted my family is my work mm-hmm. my work is the memoir that I'm working on and and that's because I memoir is my favorite medium and it's it's you know it can be seen as a self-indulgent medium but really it's 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 a craft and in order to pay homage to mary carr and lucy greeley uh my f- my favorite authors i think i'm taking a page out of their book and unzipping my ribcage and thrusting my fingers in my guts and trying to pick up the pieces and figure out what it all says And I appreciate the opportunity to be interviewed about this because I think it helps me further articulate how I feel. Um, I'm a Scorpio. Everything is about how I feel. Um, And when it comes down to it... I think it's important to trust your instincts. My instincts have always told me to write. And... By following that instinct, I've been able to pull myself up out of sticky situations. And so I think all there is to do is write.
0: I love it. Could you just for me say, what was the type of book you're writing? What's it called? Uh, me- something with a memoir. A memoir. <laughs> memoir.
1: A memoir.
0: <laughs> <laughs> If you or someone you know has experienced a hashtag cult, is trapped in a hashtag cult, or you have been affected by any group mentioned in this show, go to hashtagcult.org for resources or to get in touch with the show. We want to hear your story.